Before I begin, let me first thank the Rappaport family. It's truly an honor to honor your family in this way and to share this evening with you. Shira Shirim is a book about intense passion that has also elicited great passion throughout the ages. It has been feared and embraced, dismissed and venerated, mocked and celebrated. Its content, so explicitly erotic, so unabashedly carnal, has sent many blushing commentators looking for explanations. Anything to rid this sensual book of its sensuality, it would seem. An elaborate, often mystical metaphor was born, the lover and the beloved as God and the Jewish people, but to dual effect. It has, at one and the same time, quelled the discomfort with sexuality and stoked its flames. For if the story of human desire is also the story of divine love, then Eros, alas, is not neutralized, but is rather elevated only more. If the apex of the human divine encounter is encoded in the human pursuit, then the realm of the erotic becomes even more charged. How then are we to make sacred sense of this seemingly profane work? How do Shira Shirim and its interpreters ask us to think differently about the relationship between sensuality and spirituality? These questions arise now as we turn our attention away from Purim toward Pesach, because it is on Pesach that we read this Megillah, this scroll. And yet the reasons for doing so are oblique. There is no overt chronicle of the holiday's history in the song in the way that Megillat Esther chronicles the events of Purim, for example. Nor is there overt reference to the holiday's agricultural significance in the way that Megillat Rut reflects the agricultural season of Shavuot. To be sure, both of these thematic connections have been suggested by commentators, as we will see. But they seem tenuous, or at least incomplete, in my humble opinion. For tonight's lecture, I would like to present some perspectives on this matter, on the connection between Song of Songs and the salvation of Pesach, with the hope that, in doing so, some mysteries of the book and of the holiday will open up along the way. First, one note of introduction. Shira Shirim is having a moment in the spotlight right now. The JPS commentary to Song of Songs has just been released, written by the eminent scholar and former teacher of mine, Professor Michael Fishbane. He has done a stellar job, a stellar and sweeping job, of aggregating the history of this book's interpretation, in addition to offering his own line-by-line commentary. For those of you who leave here with a thirst for more on the topic, I cannot recommend Fishbane's work enough. I am in his debt for providing me with some historical background for tonight's presentation. In contrast to his very local, very precise readings of the text of Song of Songs, I want to consider the work as a whole tonight, to think more thematically about its importance for our lives generally, and for our understanding of Pesach more specifically. The practice of reciting Shir HaShirim on Pesach is first referenced in the Machzor Vitri from 11th to, th- 11th to 12th century in France. Quote, one recites the scroll of the Song of Songs on the Sabbath when that occurs during the intervening days, i.e. Cholamoid, of the festival of Pesach. 
two glosses on this statement immediately follow. Number one, but if no Sabbath occurs at this time, one recites it on the seventh day of Passover. This, by the way, is what Ashkenazim will be doing this year. And number two, therefore we recite the Song of Songs on Passover because it refers to the redemption from Egypt. As it says in Shira Shirim, I have likened you to a mare in Pharaoh's chariots. And the entire work refers to the four exiles, if one understands rightly. End quote. The timing of the customary reading on Shabbat Chalamoid Pesach is announced here by Rabbi Simcha ben Shmuel of Vitri, and its reasoning is adduced in the glosses by Rabbi Yitzchak ben Dorbelo, particularly in the second. Shira Shirim is tied to Pesach because it contains one reference to Egypt, the staging ground of the Pesach story. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 of Shira Shirim state, I have likened you, my darling, to a mare in Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are comely with plated wreaths, your neck with strings of jewels. We will add wreaths of gold to your spangles of silver. The male dod, the male lover, describes the female beloved, the raya, as a beautiful, bejeweled mare amidst the powerful pharaoh's steeds. She is strong and noble, powerful and elegant. Like a horse in an elite and decorated cavalcade, she carries herself with dignity and with purpose. But Pharaoh's horses aren't just any regal horses to the Jewish ear shaped by history. The Midrash in Shirashirim Rabbah, quoted by Rashi, reads this verse as a commentary on God the Lover's relationship to his beloved Jewish people at the moment of the Exodus. The verb dimitich, translated by JPS and others as likened, as in dome, is instead read as silenced, as in dumia. God thus says to the Jewish people, At the gathering of the steeds of Pharaoh's chariots, have I silenced you, my beloved? That is, at the shores of Yamsuf, as Pharaoh's armies approached, I quieted your cries. I saved you. In a similar vein, in verse 11, we will add wreaths of gold to your spangles of silver. It too is interpreted metaphorically, not as a lover eager to lavish his beloved with glistening gifts, but as God recounting the mounds of Egyptian booty that the Israelites wrested from their oppressors. On the words, we will add wreaths of gold. Rashi writes, imagining God's words, quote, I and my tribunal decided before the arrival of Pharaoh that I should entice him and strengthen his heart to pursue you with all the best of his hidden treasures so that we should make rows of golden ornaments for you. Leaving aside the complex theological questions that this statement raises, the exodus from Egypt is presented here as a peak moment in the relationship between God and the Jewish people. God silenced the suffering of his beloved, not only saving the Jewish people from oppression, but also rewarding them with bounteous and beautiful treasures to boot. Here ends the Egypt reference in Shira Shirim, a mere three verses 
and the foundational moment in Jewish history, the presumed anchor for our Pesach time practice of reading this salacious song, is over. One highly cloaked mention of our salvation, and that's it. Referenced though these verses are in both Ashkenaz and Sfarad to ground the practice, it seems very hard to imagine that the entire connection between book and holiday could rest on them alone. Other sources reference the springtime imagery of Shira Shirim as a fine match for Chag Ha'aviv, the holiday of spring, as Pesach is sometimes called. But this too feels spiritually thin. It will come as no surprise that I am not the only one who found these offerings unsatisfying. From the Middle Ages and beyond, thinkers have tried to make deeper sense of the connection between Song of Songs and Pesach, convinced that more might be said about the relationship between sensuality and salvation. So to unpack this further, let us begin with what is arguably the most famous statement about Shira Shirim in the writing of the early rabbis. The context is a discussion in the Mishnah in Tractate Yadayim about which books of the Tanakh render hands impure. Holiness is correlated with this capacity to cause impurity. And so the rabbis dispute which books beyond the five books of the Torah have this status. Particularly of concern are the books identified with King Shlomo, Kohelet and Shira Shirim, works that elicited a modicum of anxiety from these ancient figures. I have no idea why Mishle was left off the list, by the way. After declarations made by Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon ben Azai about the relative merits and implied concerns about these works, Rabbi Akiva, a man well-known for his passion and his love, pronounces with gusto, Chaz v'shalem, lo nechlak adam Yisrael al shir ha-shirim shelo titamet ha-yadayim, she'ein kol ha-ulam kulo kedai ki yom shenitan bo shir ha-shirim l'Yisrael, she'kol haktuvim kodesh v'shir ha-shirim kodesh kedoshim. Chaz v'shalem, God forbid, no one in Israel ever disputed that Song of Songs renders the hands impure, since nothing in the entire world is worthy but for that day on which Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the scriptures are holy, but Song of Songs is the holy of holies. In an outburst that reflects the outsized tone of the book itself, Rabbi Akiva proclaims Shira Shirim not just holy enough, but the holiest of all books. This book, which does not even mention God's name, is actually to be seen as God's most sacred manifestation in the world. Not only that, the world itself was meaningless until Shira Shirim entered it. Not the creation, not the exodus, not the revelation at Sinai, nothing. Nothing mattered until the sweet, seductive words of this song of songs were born. One can almost hear the words of Shira Shirim 2.5 in the background of Rabbi Akiva's words, Samhuni ba'ashishut, rabduni batapuchim, kicholat ahava ani, strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. This man is lovesick. Get him some fruit quickly. Rabbi Akiva's words, his ardor-filled sentiment, have nevertheless reverberated through time. Shir Hashirim Kodesh Kedoshim, Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. 
I want to think with you about how we might make sense of this very large claim and how doing so might help us in our quest to understand the alliance between this book and the holiday on which it is read. The Pachad Yitzchak, the 20th century thinker Rav Yitzchak Hutner, with the help of the 18th century Vilna Gaon, offers an extraordinary interpretation of this Mishnah. He writes, quoting the Mishnah first, nothing in the entire world is worthy but for that day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. And he says, precise attention to this statement causes us to notice the emphasis to be found in the words that day. This phrase suggests that the giving of Song of Songs happened on a known day. Behold, it is explicit in the writings of our rabbis that the day of the giving of the Song of Songs was the same day that King Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies at the end of the initiation process of the temple. End quote. The Pachad Yitzchak astutely notes that we ought to pay close attention to the wording of the Mishnaic phrase that immediately precedes the more famous Shir HaShirim Kodesh Kedoshim, namely, Lo haya kol ha'ulam kulo kedai keyom shenitanbo shir hashirim li'israel. Nothing in the entire world was worthy but for that day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. The reference to that day, kayom, he says, suggests that it was a special, specific, and known day. Yom matan sefer shir hashirim, a designation which sounds a lot like Yom Matan Torah Tenu, and thereby affirms the parody between the texts of the revealed Torah and the Song of Songs. This was a momentous, revelatory, world-altering day. Indeed, the rabbis claim just that. Shir HaShirim was born on the day that the Aron, the Ark, was initiated into the Holy of Holies. So the book that is Kodesh Kedoshim emerged from the Kodesh HaKedoshim. The book is not only abstract, holy, sorry, holy in an abstract way, it is uniquely tied to the place called the Holy of Holies, for its emergence was synchronous with the inauguration of that epicenter of the temple. The Vilna Gaon adds one subtle layer to this rich claim. Pachad Yitzchak, referencing him, continues. The Vilna Gaon explains that the holiness of the content of the Book of Song of Songs is rooted in the holiness of the cherubs, the Kruvim, about which are written, quote, their faces toward one another. They are entangled in one another the way that a man and his companion are entangled. The holiness of Shira Shirim is located here specifically in the Kruvim. Not only is Shira Shirim sacred like the temple, not only is it somehow the poetic manifestation of the ethos of that heaven on earth in general, but its holiness inheres in its identification with the Kruvim in particular, those mysterious, golden, humanoid yet winged creatures who, according to the book of Shemot, 
stood atop the Aron and ushered in the voice of God. To understand deeply the meaning of the Kruvim is therefore to gain insight into the meaning of this song of all songs. And to do that, as we shall see, is to gain deeper understanding of the meaning of Pesach as well. In the course of constructing the Mishkan, Moshe is instructed to make two cherubs, one for each end of the ark's cover, both hammered out of the same piece of gold. Shmot 2520 states, The cherubs shall have their wings spread out above, shielding the cover with their wings. They shall confront each other, the faces of the cherubim, being turned toward the cover. These mysterious creatures, with the countenance of babies and the wings of angels, according to some commentaries, stand at the top of the ark in an unusual posture, facing each other, yet also gazing downward, locked in a winged embrace, yet standing apart, intensely together, yet also separate, with bodies erect and arms arched overhead, this connected yet disconnected stance forms a protective canopy for the ark. These physical details already echo the love dance of the Dod and Raya, the lover and the beloved in Shira Shirim. They too are separate individuals, seeking union, yet not joined, touching, yet not touching, sometimes facing one another, often facing apart, constantly coming back to seek the gaze of the other. Over and over again, we hear the phrase, Bikashtiv Velomitzativ, I sought, but found him not. Sometimes followed by a momentary, perhaps imagined coupling, as in Achastiv Veloarfenu, I held him fast and would not let him go, sometimes left dangling with desire. Patachti ani, Lidodi, Vidodi Hamak Avar, Nafshi Yatsabidabro, Bikashtiv Velomitzatihu, Kirativ Velo Anani. I opened the door for my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. I was faint because of what he said. I sought him, but found him not. The Kruvim can also be seen then, in a sense, as the actors cast to enact the complex dynamic of the relationship that lies at the heart of Shirashirim. The identification of these media, the written word and the material form, grows even more textured when we continue to investigate the role of the Kruvim in the Mishkan. In Shmot 2522, God says, There I will make myself known to you, and I will speak to you from above the cover, from between the two cherubs that are on top of the Ark of the Pact, all that I will command you concerning the Israelite people. The two Kruvim grace the top of the ark, and God's voice emerges between them. Ever so subtly, the text indicates that there are actually two different kinds of communications, 
or revelations that happen through this means. God makes God's self known, Vinoadati, and God also speaks, Vidibarti. There is something to be discovered in this human divine relationship, it seems, beyond words and beyond discrete commandments. The revelation from between the Kruvim would be one of content, no doubt, but it would also be a revelation of an ineffable, inexpressible presence. This divine communication would represent that most vulnerable and intimate of all communications, the raw, unmediated exposure of oneself to another. Inside the embrace of the angel humans, God would quietly make God's self known. Here the visual is again quite poignant. As Rashi points out back on verse 20, on the words Porsei Knafayim, Shalo ta'asek hanfehem shochvim, Ela prusim vigvohim lumala etzel rashehem, Sheyehe asarat vachim bachalal bein haknafayim lakaporet. You shall not make their wings lying down, resting next to their bodies, but spread high alongside their heads so that there should be ten hands breaths in the space between the wings and the ark cover. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> For God's voice and God's essence to emerge, there had to be a halal, a space, a void. Two beings fused entirely together would not leave room enough for the presence of the divine other. Yet within the relationship of bonded yet individuated beings, touching yet not merged, God not only speaks, but is made known. As Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav says, it is within the great void of self-contraction, the halal hapanui, that all creativity and all relationality is born. Making space for the other is the first step toward the other. Interestingly, with all the variance in interpretation of just what the mysterious Kruvim looked like, and I brought several for you on the cover of your source packet, this one thing remains consistent amidst the artistic renderings, the gap between them. It seems that these beings, whose very name suggests closeness, Kruvim, like Krovim, actually embody the necessity for a crack of distance. Intimacy grows precisely in the space between them. What is indicated here about the divine human relationship in the void is again so very much in line with the interpersonal relationship described in Shira Shirim. The lovers pursue one another, but are known to one another in the gap between them. In their separateness, their axes of connection are made all the more manifest and all the more powerful. The male lover relates to his beloved, for example, precisely through her inaccessibility. Gan na'ul achoti chala, gal na'ul ma'ayan chatum. A garden locked is my bride, my own, my bride. A fountain locked, a sealed up spring. And yet, he also says, ma'ayan ganim be'er ma'im chayim, Vinozlim mean Livanon. You are a garden spring, 
a well of fresh water, a rill of Lebanon. There is an intimacy that grows between them precisely in these places of separation, all the while dreaming of closing the gap, of letting the waters flow, so to speak. It seems that the Kedusha of this work, born in the Kodesh HaKedoshim, is to be found then in the ways in which it echoes and embodies the implicit messages of the Holy Kruvim. In a grand act of imitatio Dei, of imitating God, human eros takes on the dynamics of divine eros. Together we dance here on earth, coming together and separating, coming together and separating. And in so doing, we may mimic the spiritual quest, an always unrealized journey, studded with transient moments of ecstatic union, but both doomed and, I would argue, utterly blessed to take place mostly in the quiet, humdrum moments in between, the halal, the longing gap between the kruvim, between the close ones, is where the bulk of the relationship takes place. It is where they, and we, become known. One more detail bears noting. The outstretched wings of the kruvim protected the aron, which carried within it not only the Ten Commandments, but also, I would argue, the historical memory of the Jewish people. The Talmud in Baba Vatra 14b teaches, Shaluchot v'shivrei luchot munachim ba'aron. The tablets and the fragments of the tablets were deposited in the ark. We held onto the entire complex memory of Sinai in perpetuity, both the whole parts and the broken shards. We preserved in a holy sanctum every fragile reminder of our deepest encounter with God, and we took it with us on our journey of wanderings through the desert. The Torah also speaks of two other objects preserved in the Aron, a container of manna, Tzinsenat Haman, and Mate Aharon, the staff of Aaron, that bloomed in Bamidbar 17. We don't have time to discuss each of these at length, but suffice it to say that they too testified to peak moments of the human God encounter. The Kruvim thus watched over all of these memories. They guarded them much like the first Kruvim of Breshit 324 stood watch over Gan Eden. They held remembrances of glorious times past and thereby grounded the hopes and dreams of what might yet be between God and the Jewish people. This movement between past and future, between memory and fantasy, redounds in the relationship of Shir Hashirim. The relationship described is one of yearning, rooted in recollection. The dialogue between the lovers is largely an exercise in longing, based on mere instances of intimacy, built on sweet imaginings. From the very beginning of the book, there is a blurriness between what has happened between the lovers and what they yearn to have happen. Chapter 1 opens with these dreamlike words, Shira Shirim Asher Lishlamo, Yishakeni Minishikot Pihu, Kitovim dodecha miyayin, l'reach shemanecha tovim, shemen turak shemecha alken alamot ahevucha, mashkeni acharecha narutza hevi ani hamelach chadarav, 
נגילה ונשמחה בך, נזכירה דודך מיין, משרים אהבוך. The Song of Songs by Solomon Oh, give me the kisses of your mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Your ointments yield a sweet fragrance, your name is like finest oil, therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me to his chambers. Let us delight and rejoice in your love, savoring it more than wine. Like new wine, they love you. Have they already been in the chambers? Are they dreaming of a return? Are they hoping to get there? Recollection appears to fuel desire and vice versa here and throughout the book. It seems that intimacy, both human and divine, thrives in the interstices between memory and fantasy. The juxtaposition of Shira Shirim and the Kruvim has yielded some rich insights into both, I hope. But what is the relationship between these holiest of holy poems and places and the holiday of Pesach? Why invoke all of this specifically during this time? The Pachad Yitzchak responds by way of the Ramban. During the time of the pairings of the Megillot to the times of the year, Shira Shirim was attached to Pesach. And this is related to that which we've already spoken about, that the day that Shira Shirim was given was the same day that the Kruvim were initiated into their place in the inner sanctum. The established and standing relationship between the exodus from Egypt and the initiation of the Kruvim is explained to us by the Ramban in his introduction to the Book of Shemot. The Ramban writes that the Book of Shemot is also known as the Book of Redemption, Sefer HaGeulah. But if so, what is the place of all of the writing about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, in this book? It must be that until the Israelites return to the level of their ancestors regarding Hashra'at Hashrina, the dwelling of the Divine Presence, they were not yet considered redeemed. Only in that moment when the Mishkan, about which God said, and I will dwell among you, only when it was complete did the Israelites arrive at redemption. So the construction of the Mishkan is part of the Book of Redemption. End quote. This was true during the generation of the Exodus, says Rav Hutner, but it is no less true today, he contends. Avalhu hadin vihi hamida gam benogea l'chol hadorot ha'baim, שגם עליהם לא חל השם גאולים עד שנתבסס להם מקום להשראת השכינה. מקום זה הוא בית המקדש, והזמן לזה הוא שעת הכנסת הקרובים לפני ולפנים, שזוהי גמר חינוך המקדש. ואם כן, רק ברגע זה של העמדת הקרובים במקדש, רק ברגע זה חל עליהם השם גאולים. This is the rule regarding all the generations to come, that no one is worthy of the title redeemed until he or she has made a space for the dwelling of the Shekhinah. This space is called the temple, and this time is called the moment that the Kruvim were brought into the inner sanctum, for this signaled the completion of the initiation of the temple. Only when the Kruvim stand in the Holy of Holies, only then can the people be called redeemed. To summarize, all of the book of Exodus must be about the Exodus, and so the construction of the tabernacle or the temple, which takes up a majority of the book, 
must be of a piece with this theme. It must be connected with the liberation process. The Ramban argues that the Geulah, the grand redemption story that usually begins with our enslavement in Egypt and ends with crossing the Red Sea or maybe receiving the Torah at Sinai, actually did not end until we engaged in the enormous building project of housing God, so to speak. This was completed when the Kruvim were initiated into the Mishkan. Rav Hutner uses a literary historical point to make a broader spiritual claim regarding the nature of liberation. Though we tend to think on Pesach that the pinnacle of the divine human relationship was when God removed us from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, in fact, that was just the beginning of the story. The full redemption would take place afterward, on the other side of the sea, on the other side of all the pyrotechnics and all the miracles, in the quiet wanderings in the desert, in the arduous, painstaking work of building. says God, Make me a temple and I will dwell among you. When you do the hard work of creating and consecrating, when you find ways in this world to beautify and sanctify that which you find within it, when you give generously of yourselves to make space for another, when you meet my salvation with your own sacrifice, then, says God, then we will be together. Then you will truly, abidingly be redeemed. No climactic moment of divine salvation, alas, could build what the long labors of love could. We were sought, and we then demonstrably seek, and therein lay the formula for full liberation. The Kruvim, the final touches of the Mishkan, molded by man and inhabited by God, testified to this relationship of mutuality and hence signaled the achievement of Geulah. We read the love song of Shirashirim on Pesach because like those tangible Kruvim, it embodies this spiritual message of redemption. It is a story of holy seeking, of devoted, reciprocal yearning. It is a tale that does not rest on a single moment of ecstatic union, but slowly grows this way and that. There is push and pull, pursuing and being pursued, remembering and wishing, loving and longing. Like the Mishkan itself, it keeps on moving. There is nothing static here, nothing one-sided, nothing that happens once and for all to keep the lovers contented. In the mutual striving, in the continuous reaching for the other through the halal, the gap, Kedusha, the holy of holies, is found. On this read, human love might not only be a reflection of divine love, but it also might be a realization of the spiritual project itself. As the Pachad Yitzchak concludes, Behold, the redemption from Egypt was not only a collective redemption, there is an explicit and clear law that every person must see himself or herself 
as if he or she left Egypt. This obligates every single individual to create a redemption of his or her own. And no redemption is complete in the soul of the individual Jew until he or she builds there her own Beit Mikdash, her own temple. As the famous Pute states, in my heart, I will build a sanctuary. If the full narrative of the Exodus includes the building of the Mishkan, then the full obligation of Pesach, of seeing oneself as if one left Egypt, also requires one to build one's own temple in the heart, maybe of the heart. The all-too-human world of desire can be a sanctum all its own, a place to experience the presence of another, to know and to be known. The sensuality, the intimacy, the memories, the frustrations, and the fantasies, all of these elements of the lush world of Shir Hashirim are parts of the grand human project to leave behind the constraints of Meitzarim, of our narrow places, to find our way through human connection to a more redeemed existence. This, suggests Rav Huttner, is a profoundly human project indeed. Kol haktuvim kodesh b'shir hashirim kodesh kedoshim. All of the scriptures are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. I hope that we can now see why. Thank you.